The Lord be with you. Let us pray. We remember this day, O God, the slaughter of the holy innocents of Bethlehem by the order of King Herod. Receive, we beseech thee, into the arms of thy mercy all innocent victims, and by thy great might frustrate the designs of evil tyrants and establish thy rule of justice, love, and peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, God bless you all for coming out here uh, today um, and being so courageous. I don't think it was as bad as some people anticipated it being. I thought we'd have an, end up having a Q&A today, but I think we've got a substantial enough crowd that we ought to just press ahead with the Bible study that's been planned. Uh, the prayer that I just prayed is a prayer for December the 28th in the church calendar, which is the Feast of the Holy Innocents. It's the day we remember the slaughter of all of those male children under the age of two by the order of King Herod at the time of the Lord's birth. And it's an appropriate collect for today because what we are going to take a look at uh, is the story of the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem and the flight of the Holy Family into Egypt. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 13. And we're going to go ahead and read through verse 23 through the end of the chapter. Matthew writes, Now when they had departed, the they here being the wise men, the magi, we recall that the wise men had come to King Herod to inquire as to where the new king of the Jews was to be born. So now when they had departed from Herod, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Uh, it's hard for us to imagine that anybody would be unhappy with the message of the Savior's birth. Uh, Christmas is, uh, well, to borrow a phrase from Andy Williams, the most wonderful time of the year. And there is a sense in which it's absolutely true. I, I will be the first one to admit it. When people start complaining to me about all of the commercialism and 
all of the shopping and all of the hectic pace that goes along with Christmas, the only thing I want to say to such a person is, bah humbug. Christmas is a marvelous time of the year. It was Martin Luther's favorite Christian holiday. And it is a time in which we should rejoice. It's almost impossible to go over the top when it comes to Christmas. And that is because it is the story of the Lord's birth. It is the story of the coming of the Messiah, the long-promised, long-anticipated Savior of the world. Now, I realize that our world has attached all kind of secular meanings to the, to the holiday. But let's not forget, it is still called what? Christmas. It is still the mass of Christ. Try what they will. Do their best. It is still Christ's day. The only question is whether we as Christians will give it up. But it is a wonderful time of the year. It is the story of the beginning of our salvation. The story of Bethlehem is significant because it is the first step on the road that ultimately leads to where? To the cross and to the empty tomb. And so it really is the most wonderful time of the year. And yet you can't help but read through the latter part of Matthew chapter 2 and come to the realization that unfortunately not everybody saw it that way. There were some who were absolutely appalled by the birth of this child, and of course the most notable one being King Herod. Why is that? Well, it really shouldn't take us by surprise at all. One of the things that you find as you read through the New Testament is that there is a great cosmic struggle that is taking place in the world. And you and I are a part of it. In fact, the Gospels bear witness to this from the very beginning. Now, keep your finger there in Matthew for just a moment and turn to the beginning of John's Gospel. Now, you know that John begins in a different way from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He goes much further back than Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, much further back than the lineages or the genealogies. He goes back to a period before time itself and space began. This is what he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then there is this very telling passage, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now what John is telling us very clearly there is that there is a struggle between the light and the dark. The good news is the darkness has not overcome the light, but John, in his own way, is acknowledging the fact that there is a struggle, that there is a conflict between the forces of light and between the forces of darkness. We see the same thing, if you skip ahead, to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. One of the things that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, this is something that we as Christians have got to come to terms with. We don't oftentimes think 
along these lines, but it's very important that we do. We need to understand that evil is a real thing in the world. Uh, Brian preached on the whole notion of sin this past week in church. Sin is an idea that has fallen out of favor in the world today. And one of the reasons that sin has fallen out of favor in the world today is because evil has fallen out of favor in the world today. We really don't think that there is such a thing as evil. Now, people will call each other evil. Just take a look at what happened in the Senate Judiciary hearings this past couple of weeks. Of course, people will obviously, but, but you see, it's, it's not that there is a force of evil out there. It's that people adopt evil ideas. But that's not the biblical notion. The biblical notion here is that there are forces of darkness. There is evil. We are involved in a great cosmic war. These little battles, these little things that we see, these are but skirmishes in a much larger global cosmic conflict. And it's not surprising then that there should be those who would oppose forces of darkness that would oppose the Lord's birth because here he was, the light that was to enlighten the Gentiles coming into the world and there was great darkness as a consequence. King Herod was one of the foot soldiers in this great cosmic conflict. Uh, and he was the first of the leaders, of the rulers, to oppose the Messiah. Now you have to ask yourself, um, why was Herod opposed? Well, from an earthly perspective, we are told quite clearly why he was opposed to the coming of the Messiah. When the Magi came, and we talked about the Magi a week ago, the Magi came, they were influential people. We're told the first thing that happened when they arrived in Jerusalem is that they caused a stir. That's what we're told. All of Jerusalem was troubled, disturbed by the arrival of these powerful, influential visitors who had come from the east, perhaps from Persia. These very intellectual and wise men who had seen a sign in the heavens and who have come seeking the new king of the Jews, and everybody was troubled, and Herod most of all. Who was Herod? It's helpful to know a little bit of background about this man because he figures prominently in the Gospels, at least in this early stage. And the line of the Herods would play a prominent role throughout the New Testament, even into the time of the Apostle Paul. So who was Herod? Well, first of all, he was half Jewish and half Idumean, which is to say he came from the land of Edom. Uh, today, this would be in present-day Jordan. Those of you who happened to go with me to the Holy Land, and we went down to um, Petra. Petra is in the ancient kingdom of Edom. So this is where Herod and his family came from. He has half-Jew, which we will see played a prominent role in the reason why the Romans appointed him to be governor and eventually king over this region. But he understood Jewish things, but he was also half-foreign. Uh, the Edomites were considered, historically, to be the children of Esau. So, you know, Jacob, of course, was the, 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 the heirs of Jacob would be the heirs of Israel. They would be Israelites. And the Edomites were the heirs of Esau. So that's who this man was. He was half Jewish. He was half Edomite. He had made himself useful to Rome during the civil wars in Palestine. Now, there were lots of uprisings, lots of civil wars in Palestine, uh, one of the things that the Romans always had a difficult time doing was maintaining the peace in that part of the world. It was very difficult to be a Roman governor in ancient Palestine. 
Uh, you know, if you got uh, a message from the emperor that's saying you were being appointed to be an imperial governor, oh my goodness, people would have said, that, that, that's great news, well, it's a promotion. You're being promoted to be governor of Palestine. Well, that was not good news. You know, here's the good news, here's the bad news. You're a governor, here's the bad news, you're a governor in Palestine. Very few people wanted to be the governor in Palestine because the people were so contentious. The Jews didn't want to be ruled over, particularly by the pagan Romans. And there were all kinds of messianic uprisings in the first century world. I've often said that this is one of the reasons why you and I can believe in the truth of the resurrection. Because in that period, prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in this year 70 AD, the 100 years preceding that destruction, there were over 100 messianic uprisings. That is to say, on average, there was at least one uprising every single year to try to throw off the yoke of Roman rule. Now, the Romans knew how to deal with messianic uprisings. You killed the Messiah. I mean, obviously, if you cut off the head, the body is going to what? Die. And that's how they dealt with messianic uprisings. Incidentally, there was only one messianic uprising in which they killed the Messiah and the movement continued to grow. And that was the Jesus movement. Until within a short span of about 200 years, they had brought the entire Roman Empire to its knees. That's a testimony, you see, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But there were these uprisings. And in these uprisings, where the Romans are trying desperately to maintain the peace, we're told that Herod, as a young man, had made himself useful. Being half Jewish, he understood Jewish things. But he regarded himself as being loyal to Rome, something that the Jews would never be. And so he ingratiated himself into the services of the emperor. And as a consequence, in 47 BC, he was appointed governor over this area. But he served so effectively, and when I say served effectively, that is to say he served the needs and the interests of the empire so effectively that they eventually gave him the title of king in 40 BC. Now, he, of course, was a vassal king. But in the ancient world, kings, and I talked a little bit about this in Bible study on Sunday, we're talking about city-states. And in those days, kings ruled with absolute authority. There was no one higher than Herod in the hierarchy, at least in this portion of the empire, except for Caesar himself. So he was no longer just a governor. He was regarded as an absolute ruler. And of course, there was no easy form of communication in the ancient world. You, the emperor couldn't just pick up the phone and say, Herod, how are things going over there in Palestine? Couriers had to be sent, and it was a long way from Rome to Jerusalem. And so he had to put in place somebody that he could trust, somebody that was vested with absolute authority and absolute power to maintain the peace and to enforce the interests of Rome. And that is exactly what Herod was meant to be. He reigned in this capacity and in this position for a long time, for 40 years. Now, as Americans, we have a hard time imagining that. The longest serving president in this nation's history was Franklin Roosevelt. He served three full terms and one part-time fourth term. Now, if he had served for four full-time terms, that would have been 16 years. That, that may seem like a long time, but... It's nothing compared to 40. And every other president has only served what? Two terms. 
Now, this is one of the reasons why the reign of Elizabeth II in England is such a remarkable thing. Most people who are living in England today have never known any other sovereign than Elizabeth II. All their lives, even people that are in their 50s, in, in their 60s, have never seen a postage stamp with any other monarch's face. They've never seen a coin with any other monarch's face on it. She has reigned for such a long time. It's become known as the, a second Elizabethan age. That's pretty impressive to have an age named after you. Well, that was the way it was with Herod. He ruled for a long time, and so he had a long shadow to cast. He is commonly referred to as Herod the Great to distinguish him from the other Herods, primarily from those who were his children or his heirs and successors. And there is a sense in which he really was great. Uh, he was a great peacekeeper. That's one of the reasons why the Romans kept him, is that he maintained the peace in that part. Now, he did it by brutality. He was an extremely brutal man, as we are going to see. But nevertheless, he did maintain the peace. He maintained the famed Pax Romana in that part of the empire. He was also a great builder. Now, this is one of the things that Herod is most well known for, is that he was a great builder. He built great harbors and great pier, um, palaces and great temples. The Vanderbilts uh, in the Gilded Age in American history in the 1880s and the 1890s were great builders. That's one of the things that they loved to do. They were always trying to outdo each other, all those brothers. And so you have George Washington Vanderbilt who constructed that magnificent French Chateau up in the mountains of North Carolina, the Biltmore Estate. And those of you who have been there, it's amazing. How many of you have ever been to the Biltmore? It's a fascinating thing. I, I went there this past summer. I've been there before. I went up to see the Chihuly display. It's just a remarkable place. You, you wonder how in the world did anybody have that kind of money. But you realize that's just one Vanderbilt mansion. How many of you have ever been to Newport? If you've ever been to Newport and you've toured the Breakers, or you've toured Marble House, let me tell you something. The Breakers puts the Biltmore to shame. The Biltmore is bigger, but in terms of the way it is designed on the inside, it is not nearly as palatial as the Breakers. And the amazing thing is that these were just cottages. Now, these were summer residences where these people came and perhaps stayed for a week or two, sometimes a month. But this was not their primary residence. They had other houses all over the country. They were great builders, and these are now national historic landmarks. Well, Herod was a great builder. Uh, those of you who went with me to the Holy Land, one of the things that we went and visited was Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. We went there because the Apostle Paul was held captive there. But there was a great harbor there, and archaeologists still go to view the portions of the harbor that are above water today. It was the greatest harbor in the ancient world, even more impressive than anything that you would have found in Rome. And it had been built by the order of King Herod. It was a great place of commerce and activity, Caesarea Maritima. He was also responsible for the construction of the temple in Jerusalem, what is commonly referred to as the second temple. That was to replace the smaller temple that was constructed after the return from exile. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. When you approached Jerusalem 
from any direction. It sat up there on the Temple Mount. It was made of polished white stone and marble, some of the stones larger than the size of a bus. Now, if you could just imagine, this, this is in an age before cranes and power lifters, that sort of things. This magnificent building, and it was polished and overlaid with gold so that when you came and the sun was rising and the sun was setting, they would say it was impossible to actually look at the temple because it would burn your eyes to look at it as the sun glistened off it. It was a magnificent structure. It's one of the reasons why when Jesus and his disciples were wandering through Jerusalem on one occasion, the disciples were marveling at the temple and calling Jesus' attention to it. And they were shocked to hear the Lord say, I tell you, the time is coming when not one stone shall be left standing upon another. But those of you who've been to Jerusalem and have actually stood there at the Wailing Wall, which is the only portion of the temple that is left, you can see that some of those stones are absolutely massive. And they were dressed and cut perfectly. You could not fit a piece of paper in between. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. There was nothing like it anywhere. And Herod was responsible for it. So he was a great peacekeeper. He was a great builder. He was a great politician. We've said that he served Rome well. One of the ways that he did this was that he managed to somehow satisfy the Jewish religious leaders for the most part, but also satisfy the Romans. He built that great temple for the Jews as a place for them to worship. And it certainly was more impressive than the temple they had been worshiping in. But he also gratified the Romans. <coughs> Placed, and this really offended the Jews, over the entrance to that great temple, a place of Jewish worship was an imperial eagle. Now, if you were in Germany, that would be like having a church built for you as a congregation, as impressive as St. Philip's, but before you went in, having a swastika placed over the entrance. Now, why did he do that? Well, it was a way to satisfy the Jews, but also remind them that what? They were servants of the emperor. So he was a great politician. He could at times appear generous, like all politicians can appear from time to time. And he did appear generous. In 25 BC, there was a famine that went through this region. You have to remember that this was an agrarian culture. We live in an industrial age. We, we don't realize what it is really like to live in an agrarian culture and to be dependent upon the land. If you run out of milk, if you run out of bread, what do you do? You go to the Harris Teeter. In the ancient world, if a famine struck your land, chances were that your whole community would disappear. Like the Dust Bowl back in the early part of the 20th century. And that's the way it was. So a great famine struck this area in 25 BC. Taxes were levied against these people. One of the things that they hated was paying taxes to the Romans. On one occasion they came to Jesus and asked the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And you remember Jesus' response, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, render unto God that which belongs to God. So taxes were heavy. The Jews hated paying the taxes. Now they were faced with this terrible famine. Many people were in danger of dying. And what did he do? He remitted the taxes during those years. He had the authority to do so. Not only that, but we're told that he sold much of his own gold in order to provide grain for the people. So he was a man who could appear generous. Bear in mind, he was only doing this to maintain his position. As we will see, it's not because he had any great love for those he was ruling over, for his subjects. It was just that he wanted to maintain his position. 
Herod had a very interesting way of operating. What was ever, whatever worked for Herod, whatever was best for Herod, that was what he would adopt. That was the policy he would take. So he was all of these things, but he was something else. Because he realized that his position was subject to the authority of Caesar, he was insanely suspicious and paranoid. Insanely so. His favorite wife was a woman by the name of Mary Amney. When he got wind of the fact that she might be conspiring against him to have one of their sons elevated to the throne, he had her put to death. And just to make sure that everybody understood, he also had her mother, his mother-in-law, put to death as well. Perhaps you can understand why that would be the case. I don't know, but the mother-in-law part, at least. Furthermore, he had two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, who had been conspiring with their mother, garroted. That is, strangled to death. Two of his own flesh and blood. And then when there was the third son who had declared himself his father's heir, even before his father died, Antipater, he had him beheaded and put to death as well. Now, he was a brutal man. And that gives you an indicator of the kind of man. This is how he maintained the peace. This is how he maintained his position. And he knew that if somebody else could serve the interests of the Roman Empire better than he could, Rome would dispose of him like a used Kleenex. And so he was going to do everything in his power to maintain his position. But toward the end of his life, he began to realize that while Rome appreciated him, nobody admired him. And he certainly was not beloved. I, I think it's safe to say that when Elizabeth II dies in England, there will be an outpouring of grief the likes of which the British people have never seen before. Herod knew that when he died, in spite of the fact that he'd been ruling for over 40 years, nobody was going to weep for his loss. But by golly, he thought somebody ought to cry when he died. So you know what he did? He gave orders just prior to his death to round up the leading citizens of Jerusalem and put them all to the sword, the most respected members of the community, so that at least when he passed, somebody would be weeping in the land. Now that's the kind of character that we are dealing with. And it's one of the reasons why the emperor himself, Augustus, in an interesting play on words, said it was better to be Herod's hus than Suyos. It's better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. So that's who Herod is. So if you think about it, Herod's reaction to the story of Christ's birth is typical of what you would expect from this old sinner. When the Magi came and they said, we have come, these powerful, influential people that caused all this stir in Jerusalem. And Herod said, why are you here? What, what are you looking for? And they said, we have come because we have seen the sign of a new king who has been born in Israel, and we have come to do him homage. We have come to worship him. What do you think Herod did? Being insanely suspicious and paranoid. By golly, if he was willing to slaughter his own children, he would certainly be willing to slaughter the others. Anyone who would be a pretender to the throne. Now some people have pointed out that this incident described here in Matthew chapter 2, the slaughter of the holy innocents of Bethlehem, is not recorded anywhere else in secular history. 
And so some people have said that Matthew simply made up this story. There is no reason for us to believe that whatsoever, for any number of reasons. First of all, as we can plainly see, this is just the sort of thing that we would expect Herod to do. The second thing is this. This would have been, compared to all of the other atrocities that Herod was guilty of, this would have been a rather minor affair. I don't know how you picture Bethlehem in the first century, but it was a little village. It maybe had, maybe, on the outside, a thousand citizens, which would have meant that in terms of children, two years and under, we're talking about maybe a dozen kids. Now, don't get me wrong, the slaughter of a dozen children is a terrible and heinous crime. But compared to all of the other things that Herod did, it's not surprising. And in an age in which there was such violence, you know, we call it the Pax Romana, but please do not understand that it was a time of peace and tranquility the way we enjoy it today. It was brutal, even in its peacetime. And so this sort of thing would have been regarded, even though we regard it as a great tragedy, it would have been regarded by the people of the day as a rather minor affair. And of course, Herod was not going to record it. <laughs> because it's not the sort of thing that he would have been necessarily proud of. So as we can see, there was opposition to Christ almost from the beginning. But, as John reminds us, the light shines in the darkness, and what's the good news? The darkness has not overcome it. You know, as Christians, we are going to face great opposition in the world. You, you need to understand that. We have been living on borrowed time as believers. We have been living, for the most part, in a Christian context, at least in terms of morality and the way we think. But those days are gone. I, I hate to disabuse you of that idea, but we are now living in a post-Christian context. We are living, and some of you have heard me use this expression before, in a cut flower society. Cut flowers are beautiful, especially if you come into St. Philip's Church on Sunday morning and see what they've done up there. I've never ceased to be amazed. But there's a problem with cut flowers. They are dead. They have been cut off from their source of life, and sooner or later, normally by Wednesday, the petals are starting to fall. And in Western society, and in America as well, we have cut ourselves off in large measure from our Christian heritage, and we are beginning to see the petals fall. And so we need to understand that there will be increasing opposition to those who seek to be the followers of Jesus Christ, to those who do not believe that truth is objective, who believe that it is subjective, that they have their own personal truth and you have your own personal truth. The Christian worldview is that there are some things that are always right, some things that are always wrong, and it is not dependent upon your circumstances. But that is not the view of the world today. So we're in a battle, my friends. It is a cosmic conflict. And just as Herod was a foot soldier in that cosmic struggle, you and I are foot soldiers in that cosmic struggle. Make no mistake about it. The only question is, in whose army have you enlisted? And when the time comes, will you, as a soldier, do your duty? You know, there's a wonderful expression that theologians sometimes use to describe the church. 
They say those saints who have gone before us, who fought the good fight, isn't that the way the Apostle Paul puts it? Who've kept the faith, who finished the course, they are described, those who've gone on to be with the Lord, as the church triumphant. They, they've won. They're, they're receiving the victor's crown. Do you know what theologians refer to the church on earth, to those of us who are still here? The church militant. The church, now think about that, the church militant. They are the church triumphant. You and I are the church militant. Why are we described as the church militant? Because we're in a battle. We're in a struggle. And it's not against flesh and blood alone. It is against the spiritual forces of wickedness. You need to come to terms with that. We want a life of ease. That's one of the great dangers of living as affluent people. We want a life of Eve. We don't want to be troubled. We don't want to be put out. But the reality is that is where we are. And there is a price to be paid for faithfulness. And we can see this at the very beginning of the story of Jesus' life. A great cosmic struggle. And yet, the promise is that even though we do not know how this particular battle is going to play out, we do know how the war plays out. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. And we can see that even though there was great opposition, Herod was a powerful, powerful man. God made provision for this poor family, for Mary and for Joseph and for this little infant. He warned them. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. God made provision. They were to escape to Egypt. Now you might say to yourself, well, how were they going to do that? They were poor. What were they going to live on? <laughs> Just pull up stakes and move out. Well, many have suggested that the very gifts that the Magi had brought would have been the means by which they would have been able to make their escape. The gifts that the Magi brought, we saw last week, had great symbolic significance, but they also had monetary value. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, these were impressive things in the ancient world, and they probably were the means by which the Holy Family were able to escape. So God provided them the means. He also provided them a place of shelter and protection. Uh, Egypt, by this point in history, was a very stable Roman province. It was not under Herod's jurisdiction, and it was not far away. Egypt was only about 70 miles south of Bethlehem, so it would have been about a four-day's journey, maybe a little longer, but it would not have been far, but it would have been far enough that Herod could not have reached the Holy Family. Furthermore, it had a very large Jewish population in the first century. Philo records there were at least one million Jews living in Egypt in the year 40 A.D. Now, there probably weren't as many at this point, but there still would have been a substantial number, which meant that there were probably kinsmen for Joseph, people that he could have stayed with, people who would have provided him with work, a means of providing for the family while they were in exile. I just want you to realize that in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the struggle, God is still in control. You know, sometimes we forget that when you're engaged in the battle. 
Sometimes you wonder if there's anybody in the driver's seat. But I can assure you, if this story teaches us anything at all, from a worldly perspective, it seems that all the world is combined. There's an old hymn that says, Zion stands by hills surrounded, Zion kept by power divine. All her foes shall be confounded, though the world in arms combine. And sometimes it feels that way when you're a Christian, doesn't it? It feels as though the whole world, everything that you've held dear, everything you've held precious, everything that is important and dear to you is under assault, under attack. All the things that you were raised to believe in, they are under assault. And there are times when you wonder, is God in control? And if this story teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that he is. There is nothing that is going to rise up in the life of the world or the history of nations that is going to take God by surprise. And that was the case here. And so we're told they went to Egypt, and there they stayed. They stayed there for a time until Herod eventually died and went on to his great reward, whatever that reward was. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And so Joseph arose and took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he just happened to be the one that got away, Archelaus, from his father. When he heard that he was ruling, he was afraid to go there. Archelaus was just as bad as his father. He was just as bad as his father. He just wasn't as gifted as his father. And as a result, uh, he would eventually be banished to Gaul by the Emperor Augustus. So, again, there was a sense in which Herod realized that if he could not serve the interests of the empire well, he could be dispensed with. That's why he was so paranoid. His son ascended to the throne, became the king over the same region, Judea, Samaria, and Idumea, but was not affected and as a consequence was banished to Gaul. And therefore, we're told, the angel came and warned them in a dream to withdraw to the district of Galilee. And he went there, and he lived in a city called Nazareth. Now, you'll recall that's where they came from originally. That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this introduces us to a very controversial prophecy. One of the things that Matthew wants to show us here uh, in the story of the Lord's birth, and we said that while Matthew and Luke both tell the story of Jesus' birth, they each do it in a slightly different way. And one of the things that Matthew wants to impress upon us is that the arrival of the Messiah was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That this was God's plan from the beginning of time. That Jesus did not just appear on the scene out of nowhere. He had been promised centuries past, and people should have been looking for him. This is one of the things that's so striking about the beginning of John's gospel. He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. I mean, this was the Messiah, the Savior. The Old Testament said in the book of Micah that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. The whole world we saw last week was pregnant with anticipation. You had the Gentiles who'd come from the east to see this Messiah. And yet, while everybody else was pregnant with this expectation, the Jewish people missed it. That's tragic. It's tragic that they're still missing it even today. But that was the situation. And so they went to Nazareth, 
that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Now, this is a controversial prophet. Because most of the time when Matthew quotes one of the prophets, for example, in verse 6, they told him in Bethlehem in Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Everybody knew that that was from the book of Micah. The same thing was true here. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted. This is from the book of Jeremiah. But when you get down to verse 23, and it says, He shall be called a Nazarene, for that was what was spoken by the prophets, there is nothing, nothing in the Old Testament that is a reference to this. If you pull out the concordance and you look up Nazareth in the Old Testament and prophetic stories about the Messiah coming, there's nothing. So what are we supposed to make of this? Well, a couple of little insights here. First of all, Matthew does something unusual here. Note he says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets. It's plural. That's the first time that he does that. Up to this point, he always refers to the prophet, somebody specific. So what is happening here is something not specific, but something general, a collection of prophets or a collection of the prophetic witness. Again, we saw that there were all kinds of citations, but here we get sort of a collection. Now, it's helpful to understand something about Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy oftentimes had a dual application. When a prophet was writing out of message, he generally didn't anticipate that it was a reference to a great future event. To a future event, yes, but probably he was addressing a problem in his own time and in his own place. He didn't necessarily anticipate a great future fulfillment. Now, sometimes they did, but oftentimes they were addressing a crisis in their own time and the fulfillment was going to be within their own lifetime. But with the advantage of hindsight, people began to realize that what was addressing a specific area in the past or a specific concern in the past also had a dual application for the future. Uh, for example, we're told that after the resurrection, this is in the first chapter of Acts, we're told that the apostles spent time studying the scriptures. Now, what scriptures were they studying? Well, they weren't studying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why? because they hadn't been written yet. So when it says they were studying the scriptures, what were they studying? The Old Testament. Why were they studying the Old Testament with a new fervor? Because all of a sudden, text that had had one meaning to them in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection took on a whole new meaning for them. Now they saw those texts in their full orb significance. That was the case here. There is a dual application in the past, but also in the future. And the fullest me meaning is oftentimes realized in hindsight. So what is the meaning of this particular prophecy? What does it mean to say that Jesus would be called a Nazarene? Well, it would appear that the real meaning of this particular prophecy, because there's no specific reference to it in the Old Testament, is that Jesus was going to come from a place of great humility. The only thing that Nazareth was known for in the ancient world, in the first century, 
was that it was not known. Nazareth was nothing but a backwater village. What would we call it today? We would call it podunk. Podunk. How many of you know where Lubico, South Carolina is? That's Nazareth. All right? That, that, that's Nazareth. Who would go to Lubico? Who goes to Nazareth? We even have something similar to this. If you read through John chapter 1, verse 43 and following, keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to John's gospel for just a moment. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And we read this, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Nathanael say to him? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, that was the attitude. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The Messiah, the King, the Savior of the world, surely He would be born. He would come from where? Out of Jerusalem. He would come out of the holy city. He would come out of the city of David, the city of kings. What do you mean that the Messiah is coming out of Nazareth? What do you mean the Savior's coming out of Podunk, out of Labico? You've got to be kidding me. I'm sorry, I'm not saying anything, nothing against your grandmother, but you know what I'm saying. Somebody's got to live somewhere. The only question is why. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I knew I was going to get grief from somebody. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The Messiah did not come to be born in a palace, to be born in comfort, to be born in a center of influence. He came to be born in a stable, and he grew up in great obscurity. And in so doing, he sets us an example and reminds us that God takes the humble things of this world you and I are so impressed by the high and the mighty. That's one of the reasons why Hollywood, to be perfectly honest with you, has so much sway and influence over our culture. Because we're influenced by the glamorous. We're, in, we're impressed by people who are powerful. How many of you know people who are name droppers? How many of you know name droppers? Be honest. How many of you like name droppers? A lot of times we don't like name droppers, do we? Because what are they trying to do? Show you how important they are because they are close to the centers of power. Jesus could not say that about anything. And yet God chose the shameful things 
the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. Turn to the Old Testament for just a picture for a moment. You get a picture here in Isaiah chapter 53. I think the greatest picture, perhaps in all of Scripture, of who Jesus is and what he came to do. This, of course, is the suffering servant. And I just want you to listen for a moment to the way Isaiah describes Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who fashioned you together in your mother's womb. Here's how he's described. Who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. That's exactly what our world wants. If you're going to make it in our world today, we are told you have to have the two coins, the gold and silver coins. What are they? Good looks and intellect. And if you've got those two things, you can go anywhere in the world today. Good looks. I know money, somebody says money, but if you've got good looks and intellect, you'll probably get the money. We're told he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Instead, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken from the transgression of my people. Listen, that is not a picture of the high and the mighty. No beauty, stricken, despised, forsaken. He goes on, they made his grave with the wicked. No cenotaph, no great monument, no obelisk. Thrown into a pauper's grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's the Savior. That's the King of kings. That is the Lord of lords. That is the sovereign over the affairs of men. And he came 
and he was born in great humility, and he grew up in great humility. He had nothing that the world should say would be attractive about him, and yet he is the only hope. That's who Jesus Christ is. What's the takeaway for us today as we finish up this look at the opposition that Jesus faced at the very beginning? The first one is this. We've already talked about it. God's plans can never be thwarted. doesn't matter how it looks in the eyes of the world. God's plans can never be thwarted. Let that be an encouragement to us in this period of uncertainty in which we are living as the people of St. Philip's and the people of the Diocese of South Carolina. I don't know how this is going to play out. And I'm not going to make you any false promises. I do not know. But as you've heard me say before, while I do not know what the future holds, I do know who holds the future. And I know that if the Savior was driven into exile, God provided for him. And if we are driven into exile, God will, by his grace, provide for us. We're engaged in a great conflict. It is a great battle, and the only question is, will we be faithful as the foot soldiers? Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. God's plans will never be thwarted. Let goods and kindred go, Martin Luther said. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Second thing is this, even evil can be used by God for good. My favorite passage in all the Bible is Romans 8.28. Everybody has their favorite passage. Maybe yours is John 3.16. Maybe it's Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Whatever it may be, my favorite is Romans 8.28. For we know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purposes. That's the only reason why you and I can hope. You know, that great passage that we read every time there's a funeral. Neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principality, neither things present nor things to come. Nothing else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that marvelous? Nothing. Well, how do we know that? Well, we know that because God is sovereign and he is in control of all things. Final thing is this, if we know this and we recognize that Jesus really is the king, then you and I need to do better than King Herod did. That is to say, we need to submit to Jesus Christ, not merely as our savior, but as our king. That's what so upset Herod. What upset Herod was that there was a new king, a new sovereign to reign on his throne, and he didn't want another king. He wanted to be king. And if you think about it, that is the root of all human sin. It is the desire to be king. It is the desire to be in charge. As the old poem Invictus says, it is to be the master of my own fate and the captain of my own destiny, and nobody, nobody's going to tell me how to live. That was Herod, you see. But Jesus does come, not merely to be a savior, but he comes to be a king and to reign. And every time you and I sin, what we are doing is we are rebelling against the king. 
We are no better. Now, you may think to yourself, well, I'm better than Herod. I'm not that old sinner. But let me tell you something. We are all as guilty as Herod was every time we sin. I encourage you, when we sing the hymns on Sunday, to listen to the hymns. One of my favorite is by Walter Russell Bowie, who was a professor at my old seminary, Virginia Seminary. And he wrote a hymn called, Lord Christ, When First Thou Camest to Earth. And it has this stanza in it. Listen carefully to what he says. He said, Lord Christ, when first thou camest to earth, upon a cross they bound thee, and they mocked thy saving kingship then with thorns by which they crowned thee. And still our wrongs do weave thee now, new thorns to pierce that steady brow and robe of sorrow place round thee. So easy to look back and say, Oh, Lord Christ, when first thou camest to earth upon a cross, they bound thee. They mocked thy saving kingship then with thorns with which they crowned thee. It's another thing to say, And still our wrongs, my wrongs, do weave thee now new thorns to pierce that steady brow and robe of sorrow placed round thee. See, Jesus Christ is king. And he wants to be the sovereign over your life. He wants to sit in his rightful place on the throne of your heart and not be forced out. We've been talking about prophecies, messianic prophecies. And one of the greatest messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, is found in the book of Psalms. So if you will, turn to Psalm 2. And I want you to listen carefully to these words. This is the reign of the Lord's anointed. Anointed means Messiah. So this is about the coming Savior. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Isn't that a picture of Herod? The kings and the rulers of the world take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds and cast their cords, everything that would bind us away. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. It's a scornful laugh on the part of God. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The nations, the peoples, the kings, those who are influential and powerful, they conspire 
They rage war. They want to throw off God's power and authority. But God laughs at them in derision. And the psalmist says the day is coming when he who is King of kings and Lord of lords who came in great humility will come again with great power and glory to do what? To judge the quick and the dead. And everything that is wrong, everything that is broken shall be set right and he shall reign forever and ever. And therefore, do not rebuke the Son. We're told, kiss him. Kiss the Son. He's reaching out his hands to you. But they are hands of love. They are nail-pierced hands. Pierced for you and for your transgressions, and for me and for my transgressions. And the only question is, will we come and kneel before him and kiss his hands and make him our king? Oh, come. Let us adore him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this gospel of Matthew. There is so much here for us. We are introduced to Jesus in a way perhaps we have never seen him before. Oftentimes our pictures of Jesus are tame. He is, a, he is an easy Jesus. He is a calm Jesus. The picture we have here in this second chapter is of a king. A king who was born in great humility, who grew up in great obscurity, but who died for the sins of the world, and when he comes again shall come in majesty to judge the quick and the dead. Grant us the grace, even though the powers of this world reject him, to come forward and kiss his hands of love and make him our sovereign, that we may follow him and be his faithful soldiers unto our life's end. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.